today we are going to begin our course on the Bible. And it's not so much to address the content of, of the Bible, but this course is designed to address the nature of the Bible. What, what is it? What is the Bible? That's our question for today. Next month will be session two of this course, and, and it will be quite different. That session is more addressing how one should approach the Bible. Before we answer the question, what is the Bible, for today, I think we can take a moment and reflect on our own, our own cultural backdrop and our biases. Uh, there's a 20th century French philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida. Derrida is the founder of deconstructionism uh, as a philosophical system. And this is a literary philosophy which criticizes logocentric thought. Logocentric thought, you probably haven't heard that phrase before. It's the idea that texts have a definite meaning. Logocentric thought is the idea that texts have a definite meaning. And Derrida was highly critical of this, the fact that texts have a definite meaning. And his philosophy of deconstruction has at its core that all works of literature hold within them irreconcilable con contradictions. This is Derrida's idea. Deconstructionism seeks to illuminate those contradictions and tear down objective meaning within any and all texts, regardless of the intent of the author. And this approach would certainly apply to the Bible as literature. I think you'll recognize in a description of this philosophy some things that we face today in the way that people often think about truth in various uh, written texts. I mentioned Derrida's philosophy of deconstruction, not because it's a root cause of where we are, although his ideas have had tremendous impact in academia, but it's more, of, it's more of a symptom. The West, in large part, has drifted from an objective understanding of truth into postmodern skepticism and a relativizing of truth, and some would say now into post-truth ideology. Post-truth being defined as an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, I, I trust that this sounds familiar or maybe feels familiar. Post-truth was Oxford's word of the year in 2016. To be post-truth is to elevate feelings above that which corresponds to reality. This, this kind of spirit underpins many of the ideas that are promoted through institutions, including the university, and it underpins many of the ideas that are promoted in pop culture today for us. To be post-truth is to elevate the feeling of the individual above any objective standard that corresponds to reality, again. You can hear the fruit of this ideology when someone says they're speaking, they're speaking their truth. Uh, you can hear the fruit of this ideology when someone responds to a propositional truth such as the deity of Jesus or the bodily resurrection of Jesus with something like, it's, it's wonderful that you believe that. I, I believe that's true for you, but it's not true for me, as many of us have heard. 
over the years. I would also contend that the fruit of post-truth culture is seen when instruction is so commonly labeled as conversation. There, there are so many conversations that need to be had uh, in the church or in the culture. And often those promoting conversations are, are really promoting instruction. But it's unfashionable. It's unfashionable right now in this, in this day to hold to any kind of dogmatic teaching. At times, I think there is a humility in this hesitancy to, to hold too strongly to dogmatic views of reality. And that humility needs to be retained and even advanced by us, followers of Jesus and the church. There are indeed conversations that need to be had in our lives. However, all too often, it's not, it's not humility that drives the conversation, but an inability or unwillingness to recognize objective reality. Or worse, a prideful disdain for authority, uh, driving the need for some of these so, so-called conversations that need to be had. <clears throat> Seems to me that our predisposition to this post-truth framework, it's, it's increasing. It's increasing in an age where many of us get our information about reality from narrow and ideologically driven platforms, curated perfectly for us, by us, just as the algorithm, algorithms are working themselves out to show us what we need to see in our news feed or our YouTube feed or, or whatever it is. And all of this background information that's the reality in which we live, it's, it's going to impact the way that we, or at the very least, those who we have the opportunity to impact for the gospel, will approach the Bible. It's going to impact the way we approach the Bible. Is the Bible a conversation, a library of stories? Is it merely a truth from its various authors' perspectives? Or is it something so much more than that? Something altogether different from any other work of literature? Of course, our, our answer is a resounding yes. Yes, it, it is different. Um, but I think to fully appreciate and, and, and internalize in our hearts and our minds a good definition of what the Bible is, we've got to do some self-examination and recognize how we've been influenced by our non-Christian culture. And ultimately, we've got to throw off the shackles of an ideology that cannot recognize objective truth, where objective truth is not even possible. That, that is a chain binding so many in our culture. We've got to throw off those shackles to really internalize a good definition of the Bible. So with that said, uh, we are going to look at some definitions of words and terms, and then finally we'll provide a definition for the Bible. What, what is the Bible? Answering this question. And then really we'll spend the rest of the morning working through that definition, and uh, we'll leave some time for some dialogue and questions along the way. Okay, so first, first thing we need to say here is what is revelation? Revelation, um, it is... A, Theological term that means communication from God. God revealing things, uh, communicating. And uh, in the study of Christian theology, revelation or communication from God is typically divided up into two categories. Two categories, the first of which being general revelation. That is revelation that's available to all people at all times. Um, the natural world 
itself is an example of this type of revelation, of general revelation. You see in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The idea here is that nature itself communicates something about the glory of God. The, the creation testifies to its creator like a work of art testifies to an artist. Uh, now, another example of natural revelation uh, or general revelation uh, is described in Romans 1. For since the creation of, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his in eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see here in this passage that is referring to all, all people, not just the group of Christians to whom Paul was writing in Rome, human beings naturally understand something. We naturally understand something about God's moral qualities. Yet, humans of every generation have darkened their understanding of that revelation given them in their own conscience through perpetual sin, which eventually leads to hardening and insensitivity. Um, so there is, a, there is a way that God reveals himself in truth to us through our very conscience, through the moral law that he has written upon our hearts, uh, natural understanding of what is right and wrong, at least to some extent. So general revelation through nature and through conscience, it is, it is just that, it is general. It provides a basis for belief in God and for the existence of moral standards. It, it also renders individuals culpable before God in light of the fact that they have violated those moral standards that God wrote upon their hearts, as we see in Romans 1. Second category of revelation, we've got general revelation. Second category of revelation is special revelation. God has specially revealed himself primarily in three ways throughout history. The, the chief revelation here is God the Son, Jesus Christ. You see in Colossians 1.15, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is God in the flesh who took on human nature. To know Jesus is to know God. To see Jesus is to see God. To hear Jesus is to hear God. Jesus is the living word or the living communication of God. And he is, he is the primary way that God has spoken in history. God has also given particular revelation throughout history. And that is to reveal truth to a particular person or a group of people. This could be the way that he has spoken to and through prophets or revelations that have come through dreams or visions. God uh, warned the Magi who visited baby Jesus in a dream not to return to Herod. This, this would be an example of particular revelation. God showing something to a, a person or a group through a dream or, or vision. 
The third mode of God's special revelation brings us to our main point of content for today. So we, we've kind of been placing this in a, uh, the larger picture of how God speaks and reveals himself. That's his written word. God's written word. And as we, as we start this, I, I want to take a look at three biblical words um, to, to, so that we can get a handle really on what is God's written word. So here you might find it helpful to reference that biblical words sheet uh, on the uh, equip link there at awakencolumbus.com slash equip. Okay. Oftentimes, generic words used in a particular way or context take on a special theological meaning. This is true with the Greek word graphe. Its, its most basic meaning is uh, it's writing. It's writing. Written language. But it's used throughout the New Testament to indicate sacred writings or scriptures that are wholly separate from any other documents. Jesus uses this word frequently to refer to the Old Testament. The Old Testament writings as a whole or to individual verses within the Old Testament. And you can see in the biblical words document some examples of Jesus referring to the scriptures. Jesus, as well as his apostles, indicate the tremendous importance of this definitive set of writings referred to as the scriptures. And I'll, I'll share a few passages here. Matthew 22, 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, Jesus says all scripture, or all graphe, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see the importance of the scriptures and what they're able to do here, and we'll come back to that verse later. And then in 2 Peter, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here we begin to see where Scripture comes from. What is the source of Scripture? It is not, it is not human. It is a far, far greater source than uh, mere, mere human beings. Okay, the second <clears throat> biblical word for us to look at is logos. Logos, it is spoken or written word. Greeks also used this word uh, to describe what to them was a, like a metaphysical force or a logic that tied the whole universe together. And as some of you know, this is uh, the beginning of John's gospel. It seems to be written in light of this understanding of the Logos in the minds of the Greek audience. And, and John is saying here that Jesus is the real force that ties everything together. Um, he is the ultimate logos. But the, the word logos is used uh, over 300 times throughout the New Testament. Many times it's used in a casual sense. Uh, someone says something to another person. Basic, just this basic form of, of communication. Really any type of communication. But you can look at our biblical words page, and you can kind of peruse this here even now, for a sample of how it's used in a, a very special way throughout the New Testament. You'll notice on the biblical words page that 
many of these examples, we don't merely have a logos, uh, a, a word or saying or communication. These, these example passages refer to the kind of logos that has a divine source. The kind of word or communication that has a divine source. Matthew 7, 24 is not just a word. These are the words of Christ. And so Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a, a man who builds his house on the rock. The words of Christ ought to be the foundation for how we live our lives. In Mark 13, 31, Jesus says, his words will his words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In John 12, Jesus says that there will be judgment for one who doesn't accept his words and that they will even be condemned by his words. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were not just speaking their words, as you see often in the book of Acts, they spoke the word of God. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. You see here in this passage how important this word is. In 1 Timothy, Paul refers to the very letter of 1 Timothy as, at the very least, consistent with the instruction or the word of Jesus. Teaching in opposition to 1 Timothy is to teach against the word of Christ. And uh, here the logos is translated instruction. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree, agree to the sound instruction or logos of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited, and understand nothing. And uh, James uses the shorthand here, the word. And the one who hears it must do what it says. James 1.23. Anyone who listens to the word or the logos but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what it looks like. Okay, there's one more biblical word for us to understand here and that is the word rhema. Uh, it's used far less often than logos, and its, its meaning is very similar. It means communication. It can also be translated word or sang. And this is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 4 uh, when he's going through this uh, period of 40 days of fasting without food and water, and, and Satan comes and tempts him. <clears throat> Jesus answered in Matthew 4, 4, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word or rhema, that comes from the mouth of God. Like Logos, the word rhema is changed dramatically depending on its source. If a rhema comes from God, it will never fail. It will always endure. Uh, it should be remembered. And it, it brings, if it comes from God, if it belongs to God, it will bring life. It will bring life as we see in Matthew 4, 4, we need it. We depend on it. We must have it. So I'll summarize, summarize these three words uh, like this. The word of God, that is communication with a divine source. It is, it's broad. Uh, it, it's a broad term. It goes, it goes beyond the Bible. 
Um, God has spoken in history to and through prophets. And the, the word of God, in the most ultimate sense, is the God-man, Jesus Christ, as we read in John 1. So the word of, the word of God throughout history has not all been written down. Um, but all that has been written down in Scripture or the graphe is the Word of God. Like, um, kind of like how all animals are not dogs, but all dogs are animals. You follow that? All of the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures are the Word of God. The Scripture is the Word of God. And this is, this is a, a very important distinction. Now, this, this leads us to the last word here to define. Uh, and this really is answering our question for this morning. What is the Bible? And here, I want to give kind of a technical definition of the Bible, and then we're going to unpack it point by point. So here we go. The Bible, comprised of 66 books, is the complete canon of Scripture. It is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and effective word of God. Again, the Bible, comprised of 66 books, is the complete canon of Scripture, or graphe. It is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and effective word of God. Now, this definition begins by really stating what what comprises the Bible, in the first sentence, and then it moves into its, its qualities in the second sentence. The first sentence is saying there is a closed set of writings. There is a closed set of writings that have the qualities of the second sentence. There's not another, out, there's not another writing outside of this closed set that possesses the qualities of the second sentence. There is nothing else. There's nothing else that possesses the qualities we're describing in the second sentence. Now, this, this seemingly innocuous first sentence, it's where we need to begin giving a defense of this definition. Uh, so, first off, let's define the word canon. <clears throat> a canon is a set of texts that are regarded as scripture. Protestants, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Christians all regard the same 27 books of the New Testament as part of the canon. And uh, we Protestants believe that the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament are also part of the canon, as do Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians. They affirm those 39 books as well. That's our, that's our 66 books, 27 books of the New Testament and 39 books of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But Roman Catholics and Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians regard a set of books written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament period called Deuterocanon by Roman Catholics, they, they would regard them as uh, part of the Bible or part of the scriptures or part of the canon as well. First and second Maccabees, Tobit, the Wisdom of Solomon would be examples of these Deuterocanonical books. And they're referred, referred to as apocryph apocryphal books also, a certain type of apocryphal books. Um, so there may be value, and I, I think there is some value in these writings. Uh, First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, Wisdom of Solomon, etc. 
and there may be helpful historical information or interesting information, but there is a, there's a pretty simple reason why we Protestants do not consider these books scripture. Uh, Jesus' ministry on earth took place after these books were written. Remember, they're from the intertestamental period. And so Jesus, his, three, his, his life and three years of ministry on earth uh, took place after all of these books had been written. The Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have personally used is known as the Masoretic Text. That's, that's where we get our Old Testament, the Masoretic Hebrew Text. And it contained only the 39 books we have in our, in our Bibles. It's 39 books there. First century Jews, they, they did use the apocryphal books, those intertestamental books. They were familiar with them. They knew them. They used them. They cited them at times. But they absolutely did not consider those books to be scripture or to be part of the canon. Jews have never, ever re regarded the deuterocanonical books as scripture. The early church councils did not affirm these books as scripture. Uh, these books weren't officially codified by the Roman Catholic Church as being on equal footing as part of the canon until the Council of Trent in 1546, which the Council of Trent is largely a response to the Protestant Reformation. And so in affirming these 39 books of the Old Testament and just these 39 books of the Old Testament and not the inter other intertestamental books, we, we believe we are affirming the books that Jesus, his apostles, and the early church fathers regarded as scripture. And we're rejecting books as scripture that may be of use, but also appear to have errors. Uh, they, they appear to have historical errors. Uh, instances of teaching that is not consistent with the 66 books uh, of, of the Bible. Um, and for these reasons, these intertestamental books lack any solid footing for us to consider them. The Word of God, which is an extraordinarily high claim to make for a piece of literature, that it is, that it is the Word of God. Not that it contains or is consistent with or shows us something about, but that it is, that it actually is the Word of God. It's a very, very high standard. I think the more significant question or questions, and, and these are questions that nearly all Christians agree on, and that is, what is the New Testament canon? And, uh, and, and then how do we know that these books are our scripture? Just one simple phrase, one simple phrase here for the New Testament canon, apostolic authority, apostolic authority. These 27 books of the New Testament these are the writings that came out of the apostolic circle. You can read with me uh, Matthew 16 here. Jesus, after Peter made his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, <clears throat> Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Think about what Jesus is saying to Peter in this passage. 
Jesus gave Peter, as, as well as the other apostles, unprecedented and unique authority to proclaim the word of God. This, this does not mean that they were, uh, they were given kind of power to preach uh, beautiful sermons or to be fruitful in a particular way. But remember our, our biblical words, the word is not just the word when its source is divine. The word is not just the word when it is the word of God. Jesus gave Peter the authority to bring the words of heaven to earth. Um, here's something you may not, we, I think we oftentimes don't appreciate when we're reading the New Testament and we're seeing some phrases used over and over and over again that have become very familiar to us. <clears throat> the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, he, he wrote that there had been no succession of prophets since the 5th century B.C., Okay, uh, Malachi prophesied in the mid-5th century B.C., and, and that ministry closes the canon of the Old Testament. Like, after that, there's no prophets. That, that's why it's a big deal when John the Baptist came. And people are going out in the wilderness to see this guy and be baptized, and, you know, he's eating locusts and wild honey, and, and it's just a crazy thing that's happening that it, it had been hundreds of years since there'd been a prophet in Israel. There were no prophets, which means that there was no one to proclaim the word of God. This is what prophets did. There was no one to do this in these, this intertestamental period. Now, we may take this phrase to proclaim the word of God. We may take this phrase as, as normative, but this was not something that was said in the first century. People did not talk about proclaiming the word of God. This was not a normal way to speak. This was not a normal way to talk about doing ministry. Um, it was very, very abnormal. So recognize how radical it was for Paul or Peter uh, or any of the apostles uh, to, to write about proclaiming the word of God. Here in Colossians 1.25, Paul writes, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The Apostle Paul claimed to be part of the apostolic circle, directly commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the word of God. Now, remember our passage we just read a few minutes ago in Matthew 16, where Jesus gave Peter this incredible authority. You know, what, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He gave, the, he gave Peter uh, he's the, the rock upon which he'll build his church. He gave him unprecedented authority. Uh, keep that in mind while we read Second Peter 3.15 and 16 here. <clears throat> Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So he's speaking of Paul's letters here. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's true. I think we experience that today. Which ignorant and unstable people distort. And hear this next line here. This is very, very significant. What Peter is saying about the letters of Paul. As they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter himself is confirming that Paul's letters are graphe. They are scripture. They are the word of God. 
So don't let the significance of that, don't, don't overlook the significance of Peter's proclamation there in 2 Peter. The apostles, the apostles were given the authority to proclaim the word of God. This is the authority that, that Jesus gave them directly. And even Paul, who was in opposition to the ministry of Jesus initially and a persecutor of the church, Jesus specifically, personally, came to Paul on the road to Damascus and he commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This isn't something that was delegated to Paul through the other apostles or through some other Christian leader or his pastor or something like that. This was a direct commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the apostles were given the authority to proclaim the word of God. The word of God, as it is written down, is scripture. So it follows that the writings coming out of this circle of apostolic authority are indeed scripture. The writings coming out of the circle are indeed scripture because of the authority to proclaim the word of God that Jesus gave the apostles. And again, we've got to think of this proclamation of the word of God. We may use this phrase right now to describe a teaching that's given uh, in a church context or preaching the gospel or something like that, but recognize how revolutionary this phrase was in the first century. It's not a phrase that was used. Uh, It's not a phrase that was normative. Okay, so these these letters, the letters of Paul and and the other New Testament letters, uh, as well as the Gospels, they were accepted very quickly by the early church uh, as inspired scripture. Ignatius, who is a direct disciple of the Apostle John, he spoke of a collection of writing, writings that he called the Gospels and the Apostles. This is the, the phraseology he used. This is first century, first, first century evidence of the canon of Scripture being accepted. Now, Ignatius doesn't give a list. He just refers to the Gospels and the Apostles. <clears throat> four Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts were always recognized by the church. They've always been recognized by the church. That The church did not, did not select or decree these books to be canon through some political process. Um, I really like what the, the apologist William Lane Craig says. Um, I don't have this on the screen here. But he says that these books imposed themselves. They imposed themselves upon the early church. It, it was never doubted that these were the correct records. In the, the Eastern uh, Greek-speaking part of Rome, there were, there were some doubts expressed uh, about the book of Revelation. And in the Western church, in the Latin-speaking part of the church, there were some debts, doubts uh, expressed <clears throat> about the book of Hebrews. And uh, on both sides of this, these, these doubts were short, uh, fairly, fairly short-lived. So in AD 175, <clears throat> we have the earliest actual list of canonical books belonging to the New Testament. It's known as the Moratorian Canon, uh, after the man who discovered, discovered this. So in 175, we have a list of New Testament books considered scripture. It has the four Gospels. It has the book of Acts. It has 13 letters of Paul, Jude, uh, two letters of John, and Revelation. It doesn't mention Hebrews, 1st or 2nd Peter, or James. uh, And it also accepts the wisdom of Solomon and the apocalypse of Peter. In uh, AD 200, uh, there's a church father named Caius who listed the same books as the Moratorian Canon. Uh, And then in A.D. 340, 
the church father, Eusebius, records the, the, this is the first mention of the list that we have today. 27 books of the New Testament accepted by all branches of the church. 340 AD, Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox. Uh, and it, from that time forward, there, there are numerous lists of the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, uh, Athanasius is one in 367 who gives the same list of 27 New Testament books. Uh, he's, he's one of the church fathers. These were, these were simply the books that were distributed among the church all over the known world. Um, from a very, very, very early date, they were regarded as coming from the apostles. And uh, keep in mind, the list, uh, the list we have are by no means exhaustive of all the lists that existed. It's not, it's not common for a document to last 2,000 years. So the fact that we have found these fragments kind of unintentionally kept over millennia, listing most or all of the New Testament books and that we have numerous versions of them is really quite astounding. Um, these 27 books are often quoted by the church fathers. They're cited as scripture. They're differentiated from the works of the church fathers themselves who wrote and were influential and were bishops overseeing you know, large territories of the Christian church. They, they differentiated these books from their own, from, from their own writings. And again, the three major branches, branches of the church that have not been shy about disagreeing with one another on anything where there could be disagreement, all affirm these 27 books. The last point I want to make on the, this question of the New Testament canon is that we have good reason to believe that God has led his church. We believe that the Holy Spirit, uh, he's the one that makes God's word take root in our hearts but that the Holy Spirit has, has also sovereignly guided the church on what actually constitutes God's word. In some ways, the, the proof is in the pudding. These books, these 27 New Testament books, have they've changed the world. They've brought life and healing to Christian believers for millennia. They've brought families together. I can speak personally the, the New Testament has completely transformed my life. It's transformed the way I think. It's brought tremendous joy into my life. Um, and I, I think many, if not all of you, have had a similar experience. In, in short here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they have done what they say they do. The New Testament books have done what they say they do. And, and in that, they... They truly stand alone. They truly stand alone. There's, there's no other books that have these qualities that have stood the test of time and that have influenced the human heart in such a way. Uh, in terms of later apocryphal books, and uh, again, this is, this is different than the deuterocanonical books that are in the Catholic, Roman Catholic Bible and that Eastern Orthodox churches consider some of these scriptures as well. The later apocryphal books... Uh, they have never been accepted by anyone as scriptural or canonical. Works like the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocalypse of Peter, or Paul, I'm sorry, they were written centuries after, hundreds of years after the time of the apostles. They've never been regarded as reliable. And the only reason I even mention this 
is because there has been an attempt by some antagonists towards Christianity to tell a story in which the church has excluded these books through some kind of political process. The reality is that Christian believers have never regarded these later apocryphal books as anything other than legend, forgeries, teaching, uh, pagan religious beliefs and practices, and, and, and sometimes talking about Jesus as the one who's kind of promoting these pagan beliefs and, and practices. Okay, um, let me stop here for a minute and ask if there's any questions or comments before we get further into the kind of qualities that are laid out in our uh, definition. So any questions, comments at this point? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Pulling from, yeah, pulling from a lot of different places. I think you'll, uh, you'll see here as we go forward, the, the biggest kind of source, aside from the actual Bible, the biggest source that is used here in this definition is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which comes from the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But yeah, the definition, so the, the definition is not like an authoritative definition of the Bible. Like the words of this definition matter in the way they're put together exactly. It's kind of a, an attempt to synthesize uh, evangelical teaching on what the Bible is. Any, anything else? Yep. No, in John 12, that would be talking about uh, his, his word um, in the sense of communication that comes from God. We would know, ba- just based on the context of John 1, it, John 1 is John, John 1 is the place where the word is referring to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head if there are other places in the New Testament that refer to Jesus himself as the word, then Revelation also. So in the writings of John, you see it several places. I'm not sure the actual references in Revelation, but the way you know that it's referring to Jesus is uh, it describes the word becoming flesh, taking on human nature. It tells the story of the life of Jesus. And so you can see clearly from the context that it's talking about the actual person. Yes. That'd be incorrect. I think that would be incorrect. Okay. Yeah. And the, the reason, so here's the reason this actually is an important question. There, right now, there's, you know, there's kind of like a progressive strand in the church that at its heart, I, <clears throat> I think is wanting to fundamentally change the definition of the Bible that the church has had for the last couple thousand years for the most part. And one thing I have heard oftentimes is to say that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And as so often happens, this creates a false dichotomy. It is true that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is absolutely the word of God. And kind of in the greatest sense of the phrase, Jesus is, he is the greatest revelation of God. 
Uh, but that does not mean that the Bible is also not the Word of God. And, and I think we made a pretty strong case that just by looking at the scriptures themselves that the, the Bible, the authoritative teaching of the prophets and of the apostles is also the Word of God. So to say that Jesus is the Word of God and only Jesus is the Word of God, which maybe is what you were getting at, uh, is, would, would not be. But that's a definition you, you want to stay clear of. And I think and, and I would also say be able to recognize when people are speaking in that way in order to de-emphasize or delegitimize the scriptures themselves. Um, well, you would also confer the same significance to the Old Testament as well, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, if I said anything in that first section that that seemed to like indicate a superiority of the New Testament or that uh, you know, just the New Testament is the word of God, that, that would have been accidental. Yeah, in the same way, in the same way that the Old Testament is graphe scriptures, the New Testament is graphe scriptures. And it, what we'll do next week, we'll get into, okay, how do we approach the Bible? Because we don't approach certain parts of the Old Testament in the same way that we approach uh, Paul's letters in the same way we approach the book of Revelation, in the same way we approach the book of Matthew. So how does one come before the word of God uh, in, in a way that is expected? Okay, let's, let's move on here. Um, and we're going to start kind of working through this definition with first things first. First being inspiration. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspired. When we say that the scriptures are inspired or the Bible is inspired, we mean something far different um, than when we say an individual is inspired. An individual is inspired to do something great. Uh, Man, that performance on the football field was inspired. Or uh, an artist's work is inspired. Um, This is what we mean. This is what we mean by inspiration, biblical inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We've seen this verse already, but we're highlighting a different word in this verse than we did the first time. All scripture is God-breathed. This this is the word that is translated, some of you in your Bibles, the the word's translated inspired. God-breathed, inspired, uh, that they are one and the same. Um... To say that the scriptures are inspired is to say that they're God-breathed, that they come from God. They are his words. Like, like speech, they come from his mouth. Uh, this, this, is, this is the doctrine of revelation upon which every other hinges. <clears throat> and al- although the other, the other pieces that we'll work through later on, they are... Supported by the scriptures themselves, uh, they do, I think, flow from, they, they, they logically and necessarily and naturally flow from this doctrine of inspiration, that the scriptures are, in fact, God-breathed. And, and notice this, it is the scriptures, it is the, the actual scriptures themselves that are inspired. It is not the apostles or the prophets who were inspired and then wrote down the scriptures as they were inspired. 
all scripture is inspired or all scripture is God-breathed. This is an important distinction uh, because acknowledging that the actual original manuscripts were inspired, as 2 Timothy teaches, it gives us a direct link from God through the prophets or apostles um, to, to the scriptures, a direct link from God to the scriptures. They come from God through the prophets or apostles to us. To believe in inspiration is to believe that when we read the Bible, God is speaking to us. He, he is speaking through the Bible. Now, to drill this down further, we, uh, we believe that biblical inspiration is verbal and plenary. Verbal and plenary. <clears throat> to say that inspiration is verbal is to say that it extends to every single word of the scripture. Inspiration, it applies to details or particular words and phrases and does not apply just to the big picture idea or, or just to the overarching theme of the scriptures. So that's verbal. To say that inspiration is plenary is to say that the whole, the whole picture, the whole of Scripture, all of Scripture is inspired. Every subject, every, every book, all 66 books. So verbal plenary inspiration uh, it means that the minute details and the big picture, all of it, it's all inspired from God. It's all fr uh, from God, God-breathed. And uh, here I'd like to share the first of, of several articles from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, and th this is a, a really important meeting in the 20th century held by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. It took place in 1978. And really the meeting uh, was meant to defend inerrancy against a drift, which I, I think happens very naturally, very naturally, a drift towards more liberal understandings of the scripture, of what the scriptures are and how they speak. The affirmations and denials in the Chicago Statement, they, uh, they represent kind of the standard of uh, evangelical conception of the scriptures, and I, I believe they're very, very helpful for us. So Article 6, I, and I'm not sharing all the articles, we'll, we'll post a link in the, um, in the uh, resource page to all the articles from the, from the uh, Chicago Statement. Okay, so Article 6 of this statement says, We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts but not the whole. This, this statement is verbal plenary inspiration. This is what this statement is getting at, that the whole and the parts are all inspired. Okay, you got that with verbal plenary inspiration. The third quality here of inspiration uh, is confluence. To say that inspiration is confluent is to say that it is the product of God while it is also the product of human authors. It's the product of God while it is also the product of human authors. 
And uh, here I'll read Article 8 from the Chicago Statement. We affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. Okay, so wrap your minds around that statement, if you will. They're affirming that God utilized the distinctive personalities, literary styles, without uh, overriding their will and their personalities. This is why, because we believe the scriptures are, are confluent, this is why we can speak of Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. You know, we can say things like, Paul wrote this, or James wrote this, or Moses wrote this. Uh, and we can say these while still affirming that 1 Corinthians or James are they're God-breathed, that they come from God. Uh, Paul's writings, they're different in style than the letter of James um, or from the Hebrew prophet Zechariah. They're different, and you can see, you can see Paul's personality, uh, I think, in so many ways. You know, many of us who've been studying the Bible and, and kind of coming before the Bible and underneath the Bible for years, we feel like we've gotten to know the Apostle Paul in so many ways. Um, this, is, this is true because the scriptures are a confluent. Now, if this is what inspiration means, verbal, plenary, confluent, how, how did God do this? How did he do this? Um, how did he give us the scriptures in a way that is verbal, in, in, in a way, how did he inspire the scriptures in a verbal, verbal, plenary, and confluent way? And so here, and we're, we are just kind of breezing over this. There's so much more that can be said about this. But we get into theories of inspiration. And uh, two, two theories here. First of which is the dictation theory. Basically, it holds that God, he dictated verbatim to the biblical writers, and they were essentially copyists. Kind of like, like a court reporter taking down notes as God spoke to them. Almost no one holds this view. I mean, basically no one holds this view. I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who truly holds to this view. And this view, this dictation theory of inspiration could be consistent logically with verbal and plenary inspiration. It's, it's not consistent with the scriptures, the inspiration of scriptures being confluent. So <clears throat> this is not a view that is held. It is a view, though, that you will often hear. It's a view that is often held out as kind of a straw man from those wanting to criticize inspiration, even, even from believers uh, wanting to criticize biblical inspiration. So I think it's important to know what the dictation theory is and, uh, and to recognize that essentially no one holds to this view. A more suitable theory on how verbal, plenary, confluent inspiration of the scriptures by God happened is the supervision view. That is the, this is the view that's most widely held by those who, would have, who we would say would have a high view of scripture, who would believe in the inspiration of scripture, 
in some of these following points of our definition as well. Uh, and I have a quote here from uh, William Lane Craig <coughs> about the supervision view. It is the view adopted by most persons who believe in the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit doesn't dictate to the human authors what to write, but he supervises the writing of Scripture in such a way that the human author will write what God or the Holy Spirit wants him to write so that the author is under the direction of the Holy Spirit in spontaneously writing what then is God's word. And it may take you a, a moment to kind of wrap your mind around what is being communicated about the supervision view there. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave us uh, with, with one final thing on that. There is a, a multitude of specific views of how exactly God goes about doing this. Similarly to how exactly does one come to faith in Christ? How exactly does that happen? Uh, does God, uh, how does he draw exactly? What will does, what, what role precisely does God's sovereignty play in that drawing? And what role precisely, if any, does man's, uh, does, does man's decision and free will play in that? And uh, in that, there's certainly no agreement in the church, in the Protestant church, and, and even in our church. Likewise, with the supervision view, uh, we could get into... Uh, we could get into conversations about how exactly it's possible for God to supervise the writing of scriptures by the direction of the Holy Spirit without overriding the freedom of the writers. And that is an interesting discussion, but not one that we have much time for today. Um, so, but if you're interested in that, there's a plethora of materials <coughs> that you could read on the subject. Okay. Now that we've described our view of verbal, plenary, plenary and, and confluent inspiration, I, I, um, you know, actually, before this, any, any questions or comments about what we just covered? Matt, yeah. Um, could you provide us an example of how people would use dictation kind of to discredit? I will do that in a few minutes, okay. just naturally. So uh, hold, hold off on that for a minute. Yeah, Tyler. We won't get to that much today, just for the sake of time. I think that is, and, and the, the reason for that is this, this message today is a little bit more of an in-house conversation. And so we're coming to this with the assumption that the, the church fathers, the early church testimony about the apostolic nature of these writings, that it's, that it's correct. You know, we're trusting that God has led in the the, the uh, like I said before, the direction uh, not only of how the scriptures impact us, but what we actually view as the as the scriptures. Um, so, from a I would say a base 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 level, we've kind of already covered that. We may cover that later later on in our apologetic section during the equip series. I think that would be the more appropriate context for that specific kind of defending of yeah. some of these things. Anything else? Okay, so um, I, I want to provide a couple other quotes on inspiration that give a different perspective 
You may have heard of Brian McLaren. Uh, he's, he's a progressive Christian, former evangelical, um, who's kind of moved more and more out of, out of using the evangelical label uh, since the time I've, I've been following Christ. And he's had considerable, considerable influence, very considerable influence. In describing the Bible, McLaren says the, the Bible, it, it contains powerful conversations. Now, um, this quote is true. There are conversations recorded in the scriptures. But what I think McLaren, well, what I, I'm sure of what McLaren is getting at in this quote, it's, first of all, I'll say the quote is in the context of a debate with this evangelical pastor, Andrew Wilson. And McLaren is wanting to leave room for those who do not believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus to still affirm the truthfulness of the scriptures and the inspiration of the scriptures. So the question is, can, yeah, do you, can you leave room for, those, for people to say the scriptures are true or inspired, but Jesus did not rise from the dead? And you know, McLaren's answer is yes, you can, because the Bible, it, it contains these powerful kind of conversations back and forth. Um, this kind of language that refers to the Bible as a series of conversations or a library of stories, uh, it, it is so common, so common these days in uh, theologically progressive circles. Yet it is, in, in the view that I'm wanting to put forth today, it's little more than a nuanced, a more nuanced attempt to tear down the traditional Christian doctrine of inspiration. To define the Bible in a fundamental way as conversations, it's a failure to recognize that it's God's word. It is God's word to us. And to describe something that tends, or that, that uh, intends to be instructive or authoritative, to describe it as a conversation, it is a quick way. A very, it's, it's maybe the fastest way to subjectivize, subjectivize what, what it actually is intending to teach or its objective meaning. <clears throat> Here's another quote here about inspiration. What, and this gets to, to your question, Matt, what does the term God breathed mean? Does the Greek word theopneustos sometimes translated as inspired, necessarily imply the idea of dictation? That God controlled the tip of each writer's pen? This is from Steve Chalk, and uh, he is a, uh, he's a pastor, he's a writer. He identifies as, as an accepting evangelical, <clears throat> although his theology would mostly be characterized as progressive. And this context is also, or the, the context of this quote is also in a debate between Chalk and an evangelical pastor. What, what he's doing here is creating a false dichotomy be, uh, between a dictation view, which remember we've said almost no one holds to a dictation view, uh, and an ambiguous view of inspiration, that it is almost meaningless. Um, do you really believe that God controlled the tip of each writer's pen and had them write word for word, letter by letter, you know, that he over, 
rode them like they were men possessed and just controlled the movements of their hands. Do you really believe that? First off, there's an assumption by chalk that most evangelicals believe this, which is incorrect. What, what I believe he's doing here is trying to get people to reject dictation and accept what is really an incoherent view of inspiration. Basically, God inspired the conversations. He inspired the conversations, but you know, sometimes people got it really, really wrong in those conversations. <clears throat> um, so this is what I was referring to earlier when, when I said that sometimes dictation theory will be set up as a straw man in order to convince people to come over to the view of scripture that, dismiss, that, that dismisses inspiration in any, any meaningful set, sense. And so I say this is a false dichotomy. Dictation on one hand, and then just a weak, almost nonsensical view of inspiration that is so ambiguous that you can kind of pick and choose what, what they got right, what they got wrong. Um, that is not a genuine dichotomy. There is another position to which nearly all Christians hold. Um, that is the supervision view of inspiration. So we, we've got to be able to recognize and this is one of the things that we really want the Equip series to do, to, to help empower us to do, to recognize the signposts on the road of false teaching, to recognize those things uh, that ultimately represent a low view, what we would characterize as a low view of Scripture. Okay. Um, the last point on inspiration, and this applies to all the other biblical qualities that will follow, what, what is it exactly that is inspired? When we talk about inspiration or any of these following qualities, we are, uh, we're talking about the original manuscripts. The original Hebrew or Greek documents that were penned by the prophet or apostle or, or that person in the circle of apostolic authority. These are called the autographs, the actual original letter written by Paul brought to the church in Corinth would be an example of an autograph. Of course, we don't, we don't have the literal autographs that were penned in the first century by the apostles. We have copies of those documents in uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and, and we have copies of the Greek New Testament documents. Here I'd like to share another article from the Chicago Statement that speaks to this. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and trans translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they fairly, or I'm sorry, that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Um, so this affirmation and denial is one, to help us see that when we talk about inspiration, infallibility, uh, inerrancy, authority, all of, these, all of these Bible words, we are talking about the autographs. We're talking about the original manuscripts. 
Yet, we should have tremendous confidence that what we have today, that the Greek New Testament we have today is a faithful representation of the actual autographs. Um, now, how do, we, how do we know that what we have today is accurate? Uh, this, is, this is, again, a, a long, long conversation we could have, and we may have in our apologetic section. <clears throat> That's yet to be determined. But just to, to say a, a, a couple, make a couple of points here. Number one, we have an exorbitant number of ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,856, uh, to, to, to be exact. And some people count it a little bit differently. This is according to Sean McDowell. Our earliest partial manuscript is dated at 130 AD. And this is remarkably early. <clears throat> so we have 5,856 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament dated uh, as far back as 130 AD. And I will say there are there are discoveries of seemingly earlier and earlier documents. There's, there's one that's being kind of worked through right now that may be actually uh, from the first century, first century copy of the Greek text. And, um, some are, are dating it to 85 AD, <clears throat> but that's kind of yet to be uh, solidified, if you will. There are, uh, there are copyist errors. There are lots of copyist errors and variants in the manuscripts that we have. There's thousands, thousands and thousands of them. <clears throat> Certain skeptics will make much of this. Uh, none more famously than Bart Ehrman, who if you take a New Testament course at Ohio State, you're going to be reading his textbook. Um, he's, he's the most famous pop culture critic of the New Testament uh, after his deconversion from evangelical Christianity. Um, but he's also a, a scholar. And uh, he famously makes much of these variants and you know, clear errors in some of the manuscripts we have in his popular work. What's interesting, though, is in his academic work, he does not make so much of these errors. Um, even Ehrman asserts that because of the vast number of manuscripts that we have, we can be almost certain as to the original. We can be almost certain as to the original. 99.9% .9 of textual variants are completely inconsequential, and they're obvious copyist errors, like a letter being left out or a word being misspelled. Uh, and it's, it's, it's evident from the text themselves uh, how one would construct what was, in fact, in the original. And this is a, a form of biblical criticism called lower criticism, kind of a getting at the, the, the what are the original manuscripts, and it's, it's been quite, quite helpful. You know what, I, I thought I'd just, I thought I'd include a text from my mom here at this point. Um, you, guys, you guys receive texts from your moms sometimes? I think it's a standard feature uh, for things to sound a little finicky. Am I right? So, okay, what, what did she say here um, in the top? My, I, I gave my, my parents tickets to the Ohio State-Maryland game for uh, their, their Christmas present. 
And my mom texted me, I'm very excited about going to the game. Oh, wait, no, no, no. We've got to read the bottom here. Oh, yeah. The, the last gray box there. Thank you so much. Dad said, I can't tell and embarrass him. Okay. You would read that. What, what is my mom talking about exactly? Like, and this is what I have to do with every text I've ever received from my mom. <laughs> and every text I've ever received from Chris Holt. <laughs> um, <laughs> wait, wait. Dad said, I can't tell? I can't tell what and embarrass him? What is she not supposed to tell about? Okay, then you just read the next sentence. Uh, Me yell too loud, don't know what he is talking about, LOL. Mean holler. (laughs) Now, I know my mom. I know the context. And so what I have to do with every single text I ever get from my mom is, wait a minute, what did she, what what is that supposed to say? Oh, dad said I can't yell and embarrass him. My mom's very, very loud. Very loud yeller. I would put her up against anyone's mom as a loud yeller. Uh, it can be both, both encouraging when you're like on the football field and she's yelling, or, or absolutely terrifying when you are a child under her authority. Um, anyways, can't yell and embarrass him. Okay, simple mistake. It's just a misspelling. And I'm not for a moment saying that the copyists of the New Testament are like my mom. You know, they're doing this very, very carefully. But I show this to say that it is, uh, the the analogy breaks down a little bit because we're not saying that the autographs themselves had errors. The autographs don't have any errors. They are every word, every jot and tittle, every little piece in the whole is inspired by God and is is the word of God, yet the, 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 we're not saying, and no one says, no one is saying, that the copies are inspired. And that if you have a textual variant, variant or an error and, and some copyist error, you know, they spill some ink or they put a period in the wrong place or something like that, that that is inspired. But thankfully, the reason we have so many variants, which, and again, it's an infinitesimally small percentage of the text as a whole. But the reason we have so many is because we have so many copies. We have so many ancient copies. These manuscripts were distributed all over the world from the first century. They started spreading all over the world. And as such, the word of God could not be contained. It could not be corrupted. I thank God that we don't have one kind of authoritative custodian of the Bible that's been passed down to us over 2,000 years, that if it was corrupted by that custodian, the whole thing would be corrupted by all. Rather, the, the biblical writings were dispersed all over the world from the first century, and so it's very easy to construct what is, what do we have? What, what is the original manuscript? What did the autograph say? Okay, so on to the next um, part of our definition here, and this is inerrancy. Um, Inerrancy means that the scriptures are without error in everything they assert and everything they deny. <clears throat> and here I'll share uh, another article from the Chicago Statement. It says, We affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant. Being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit, we deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science, 
We further denied its scientific hypothesis about Earth history may be properly used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. It's getting into some real specifics there that we're not going to touch on today. Um, like with all the other biblical qualities, it is the original manuscripts that are inerrant. They must be properly translated and properly interpreted. Um, inerrancy, here, here's a quote, is a fundamental marker of evangelicalism. But, this is important, it's important for us to understand, it is not an innovation of evangelicalism. It is the historic position of the church on the scriptures. This is quoted from a Gospel Coalition article, uh, Did Fundamentalists Invent Inerrancy? Which has kind of been a, a charge <coughs> leveled by some over the last few years. And again, you'll have that with many other resources in the resource page <coughs> on the equip section of, of the website. Inerrancy is one of, it's one of the key identifiers of evangelicalism. But as, as Woodbridge says here in this quote, it, it is the historic teaching of the church. church. Church fathers are on record affirming the doctrine of inerrancy and defending it. Defending against those who claim there are mistakes in the New Testament writings. Uh, you can read many of those references, again, by uh, following the link on the Equip website and clicking on specifically the Gospel Coalition article there. This, this is one area where uh, Roman Catholics and evangelical Protestants are, are in agreement, or faithful Roman Catholics, I should say. Here's a question and quote from uh, an authoritative Catholic resource. This is coming from, from a Roman Catholic. So the question is, is Scripture inerrant? Certainly it is. Certainly it is. Is its inerrancy unrestricted? As all of it is inerrant. The church's constant teaching seems to indicate that it is. Uh, now, the reason you'll notice the phrase, the church's constant teaching, and kind of sense this little bit of hesitancy at the end of the phrase um, is because uh, Blackburn here is wanting to point to the whole of historic teaching within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, in the whole of teaching on inerrancy within Roman Catholicism, there is a clear affirmation of unrestricted inerrancy uh, over the last two or three decades. There have been some statements by popes that seem like they're kind of uh, putting their foot in the water to walk outside of inerrancy, and then those are typically walked back. And I will say this is one of the problems you have when you lift up the, uh, the interpretation of the church as being the only interpretation. Um, you, you can't go, the, the authorities within Roman Catholicism today cannot disagree with the teaching that has been given in the past. This is, not, this is something that would break the system in a way. And so they're bound to this historic teaching of inerrancy, even as there are some who seem to want to soften it and move in a different direction. I think as our culture is, is moving, this doctrine of inerrancy is certainly under attack from the culture. 
And uh, I would say also from within the church. <clears throat> More progressive Christians tend to speak of wanting a, a, a deeper, quote, understanding of what the Bible is. Similar to attacks, attacks on inspiration, this, this can be this desire for a deeper understanding of the scripture that, uh, that disavows inerrancy. Um, it uh, can be a way of framing the subjectivizing of the scriptures. Depth is paramount. I mean, certainly, we've got to, we've got to be deep. And I think next month, next, next session we have, really the, the tools there will help us, will really help us go deep, deep, deep in the scriptures. Um, but here, again, I'm going to quote from Steve Chalk on Numbers 15. Um, we, we don't have the quote in the slides here. Uh, this, is a, this is a chapter of the book of Numbers where God instructed uh, Moses to give the death penalty to a Sabbath breaker. Uh, this is during the period where the Jews were wandering in the desert. Steve Chalk, uh, a progressive evangelical, would say of this chapter, I don't think God does that. This is, this is, this is quoting. I don't think God does that. I think God is unchangeable that essentially the recording of what happened in Numbers 15, it is incorrect. They got it wrong. It's, it's not true. The, the man may have been executed for his crime, but God played no part in that whatsoever. Moses got it wrong. Uh, the authors got it wrong. So Moses was an error, and the text is an error in the way that it describes the events unfolding according to Chalk. Um, We've got to be weary, very, very weary, and recognize this kind of language. The church has been, it's been rife with attacks on inerrancy in recent years. Um, and it's not that this doctrine is fundamental to salvation or anything like that, but inerrancy must follow from inspiration. It's got to follow from inspiration. God is truthful if the scriptures are indeed God-breathed. If they are indeed inspired, then the scriptures must be truthful in all they affirm and deny. When a Christian disregards inerrancy, what they have to do, when a Christian rejects inerrancy, they, they have to establish either themselves or some other standard to determine what in scripture is true and what in scripture is error. And this is what happens subjugating the scriptures to either themselves or, or to that standard. This is, this is most definitely not the view of the scriptures that Jesus held, and it, it borders, maybe even crossing over the border, of the idolatry of self. <clears throat> we're fighting the spirit of our time on this one, guys, and frankly, we're fighting our own flesh to hold to the scriptures themselves as the standard of truth. The scriptures themselves are the standard of truth and cannot be subjugated to our feelings, our emotions, our minds, uh, or any other standard. We must be subjugated to them. They are the word of God that conform, that our, our, our minds and pattern of life has to be conformed. Too. Okay, so in light of this, how, how do we deal with apparent errors? 
Because there are things, you know, just in our simple reading of the New Testament, we're going to come to stories that seem um, maybe not exact from one gospel to another or one account to another. Or we may, we may come to things that, for whatever reason, they appear to us to be in error. Uh, Historically, Christians have had three choices. If we hold to inspiration, we hold to inerrancy, really we have three choices if there is an apparent error. Number one is, could there, could there be a transmission error? Is there uh, an error, a copyist error? Is there something included or excluded from the scriptures that ought not to have been included or excluded? Uh, there are a small handful of fairly inconsequential, mo- mostly completely inconsequential passages that are disputed. And we have the benefit of almost any Bible. You see these in the footnotes. You know, nobody's hiding this. Despite like Bart Ehrman's claims and misquoting Jesus, uh, no, no one is hiding the fact that there are a handful of passages throughout the New Testament, John 8, Mark 16, that are, that are disputed, uh, of really uh, little, little consequence when it comes to our theology. So is it possible that there's a, a transmission error? Number two, is it possible there's a translation error? Most of us are not reading the Bible in Koine Greek. Uh, none of us, it's, it's none of our first language. Um, at least I don't believe so. And so is it possible that there's an error in the way that the uh, translators went from Greek to, uh, for, for us, English. Again, we have the incredible benefit of, number one, being able to access the Koine Greek and look up every single word. It's very, very easy to do. There's lots of tools in order to do that. There are a plethora of Greek scholars who've written so much. There are endless commentaries on every single verse in the New Testament, um, and we have right before us multiple translations that are very helpful to check against one another. And number three, and this really is, I think, where we find ourselves the vast majority of the time, is there is an error of interpretation. I'm not understanding this verse in the way that God intends me to understand it. Uh, maybe I'm missing the genre. I'm thinking this is a different genre than it really is, and so I'm understanding it incorrectly as a result of that. Uh, maybe there's some, some kind of ignorance on my part. Perhaps there's a, a, an easy harmonization between the Gospels that uh, just needs some time to be worked out. Uh, others have undertaken this task uh, and written extensively about Bible difficulties and answering the most basic questions, the, the questions that really the verses and errors that Christians tend to struggle with and object to and that skeptics bring up time and time again. There are a plethora of very easy answers and reasonable explanations for the vast majority of <clears throat> those errors. So these are the three choices really that, that uh, faithful believers have when we encounter what we believe is an error in the scriptures. Notice one of those three choices is not that there is an error in the original manuscripts. Um, we, have, we have these three, these three choices alone. Okay, the next, uh, next point here is the authority of the Bible. 
Uh, and I want to talk about authority and kind of define it. This, this term by starting with two articles from the Chicago Statement. Okay, article number one. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. In other words, the scriptures are not authoritative because we say so, or because we believe they're, inter- that they're authoritative, or because the, the church has said, or the pope has said, or the church fathers have said, or anyone has said. They are authoritative in and of themselves as a natural byproduct of being the word of, of God, uh, being the scriptures. Okay, Article 2 here, we affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. In other words... If your pastor, if the church councils, if the official teaching of the church, if something said during the Equip series, if any of that disagrees with the teaching of the Bible, the Bible has the final word. It has the first and last word. There is nothing. There is no teaching. Uh, there is no systematic theology that is on par with the scriptures themselves. They, they stand absolutely alone in being God's written word. <clears throat> um, okay, before, um, before we discuss this more, I, I want to kind of contrast these two statements from the Chicago Statement with another statement. And this statement is from just a, a, a pastor who writes on a, um, on, he writes on a United Methodist-influenced blog, Website. Uh, this is not necessarily a theologian of note, but I, I thought this phrase was very helpful kind of in describing what I, I, I feel I have so often seen. <clears throat> so Jason Valindi here. He says, The Bible is authoritative for me. I have great respect and reverence for the Bible. It has the first word in my life because it is authoritative. I have too much respect for the Bible and God has too much love for me to make the Bible authoritarian for Christians. And if you read the full context of the quote here, what he is saying is that the Bible has the, it has the first word, but it does not have the last word. It is my, in other words, it is my starting point. I'm first going to go to the text of scriptures to determine what's true about God or the way I ought to live, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to go beyond that. And uh, to give the Bible the last word would be to make the Bible authoritarian, which uh, apparently is disrespectful, according to this ideology. To say the Bible is authoritative, so I I want to make this clear, what we mean by authority. To say that the Bible is authoritative is not is not merely to say that I respect it as a starting point. Uh, The the, the last quote, it provides a radically, radically different definition um, of of authority than what we see in the Chicago Statement. 
Imagine a child talking to their parent in that way. I respect what you have to say. I'm going to consider it as my starting point. But I will not be bound by it. And ultimately, I will decide what to do. Now, this, this would be appropriate for a child to say. It would be appropriate for a child to say if they're not under the authority of their parents. This is completely acceptable for an adult child to say. I respect you. You know, mom and dad, I respect you. I want to hear what you have to say. If you disagree with something, I, I want to listen to that. I want to honor you. But I'm not under your authority. I'm not bound by it. Um, that's completely reasonable. Uh, it would be outrageous for a young child to say this to their parent. Imagine a child who is under the authority of their parent. Uh, a six, seven, eight-year-old saying, you know what? I, do, I respect your authority. I'm going to just, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, and then I'm, I'm going to make my decision <laughs> about when I go to bed or, or what I eat. Um, parents don't appreciate that. And I wish I was not speaking from personal experience, <laughs> but I most definitely am. And I think you other parents can relate to that. That is not what we have in mind by parental authority, uh, is just using our words as a starting point. It's a completely nonsensical and ridiculous view of biblical authority. But this is what you hear so often from a certain strand within the church. And again, I'm wanting us to recognize those things and uh, reject them, frankly, and, and really be able to help others in sound doctrine and teaching. <clears throat> the Bible is authoritative for all people, including Christians, all people, though, including Christians and including us as individual Christians. It is the first word and the last word. Anything less is not authority. Maybe influence, but it's not authority. There will be times when we come to the text and there is a point of tension. There's a point of tension between the clear teaching of Scripture and our own thoughts, feelings, or desires. And when I come to these points of tension... If I opt to follow my thoughts, feelings, or desires in opposition to the teaching of the scriptures, what I'm doing is I'm placing myself as the authority and the scriptures as subordinate to my authority. This is a theme I think we've seen in an improper application of these various definitions so far. A theme of placing myself as the authority and the scriptures in subjugation. In light of what the scriptures are, to submit to the scriptures properly is it's to submit to God. It's to submit to God. So we must elevate the scriptures and come under them, not place them under our authority. Okay, the next definition here is a sufficiency. <clears throat> the sufficiency of scripture says that scripture is self-interpreting. In the Reformation context, this, this meant that the scripture was so coherent and plain that the commoner could read it in the local vernacular and gain the knowledge necessary for salvation. <clears throat> I'll let you wrap your minds around that for a moment. To say that the scriptures are sufficient is to affirm the Reformation principle of sola scriptura or scripture alone. <clears throat> this isn't to say that commentaries or extra-biblical resources aren't helpful. 
and, and wonderful resources for the church. I'm so grateful for much of the scholarship that's been done to help us understand the Bible and even the, the lower criticisms that I mentioned earlier to help us have assurance that we, what we have today in the Greek and Hebrew is, is accurate. It, it is indeed <clears throat> what God spoke. Um, so it's not to say that these are bad or unhelpful. It is to say that there is, hear this part here, there's no interpretation that is binding or authoritative in and of itself. There is no interpretation of Scripture that is binding. There is no interpretation of Scripture that is ultimately authoritative. That is the interpretation of Scripture. Now, I, what I'm not saying by that is that there's not one clear, objective meaning and truth in the Scripture. But um, that, that, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there's not one kind of... Uh, one catalog of interpretation on the church or on the scriptures that uh, is authoritative that cannot be overthrown by the scriptures themselves. Um, What's an example of this? Okay. So I think the principal place where we differ with others who proclaim Jesus here is, is the way we differ with Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. This is not a Roman Catholic doctrine. It it cuts against uh, some very significant doctrines within Roman Catholicism. Um, So one one simple example of this would be Jesus' family. Jesus, the New Testament says, he had brothers. Okay? His brother, Jude, is the brother of Jesus. James is the brother of Jesus. We read about Jesus' brothers in the New Testament. This is how the New Testament Greek word was translated. This seems to be the clear meaning of the text, Jesus' brothers. Now, Roman Catholics do not believe that Jesus had brothers. The reason they do not believe that Jesus had brothers is because there is an authoritative interpretation of the scriptures that comes through the Catholic Church namely through the Pope and through the catechisms that says that Mary was, Mary herself was immaculately conceived. She was born miraculously without a sinful nature and she never had sexual relations with Joseph. This never happened. And so therefore it's impossible for her to bear other children and it's impossible for Jesus to have had brothers. So we believe, as the Catholic Church, and teach and say authoritatively that these are not Jesus' brothers, but these are Jesus' cousins. This is what, this is what the word means. It actually means cousins like, like John the Baptist. So the church is, Roman Catholics are bound to this particular interpretation. You cannot be a good Roman Catholic and believe that the church got it wrong, that, that the church isn't correct. No, no, no. Actually, this really seems to be talking about Jesus' brothers. Now, this is a relatively uh, minor difference in interpretation, and there are certainly much more significant ones, but I thought that illustrates the point well. Uh, here are some comments on this from, uh, from Catholic.com, which has a, a lot of really helpful resources, I think, from a Roman Catholic perspective. So this is describing Bible Christians. Uh, and I appreciate that this is not a straw man that's set up. These statements are, are true and accurate. 
So Bible Christians, that would be us. This would be Protestants, evangelical Protestants. Uh, basically non-progressive Protestants. Bible Christians, based on their tradition, study the Bible with these premises. Number one, there is no binding authority but the Bible alone. The Bible alone, the scriptures, are the binding authority. Number two, there is no official binding interpretation or interpreter. Uh, Number three, the Bible is perspicuous. That means it's easy to understand and can be interpreted and understood by anyone. Again, this is consistent with the uh, doctrinal marker of sufficiency. Uh, And lastly, an individual can and should read the Bible and interpret it for himself. Um, Now, with the last one, I I do think this is an accurate representation of, uh, quote, Bible Christians. However, this last point may be under dispute. We should read the Bible and interpret it for ourselves in community, with the direction of other believers understanding historic interpretations of the scriptures. And we most certainly should not come up with our own interpretations that like feel good or seem right to us. The standard of proof, if we believe that the Bible uh, is saying something different than what other Christians have thought and said that it has been saying for hundreds and thousands of years is extraordinarily high. Now, there have been times where that burden of proof has been met, namely in the Protestant Reformation and other kind of revivals throughout history where the church has been wrong in the way that they have, uh, that they have interpreted various biblical passages. Um, but that is unlikely to happen for any of us at any time in our lives. So uh, just to rightly understand that last point. Now, Roman Catholics based on their tradition, study the Bible with different premises. They do not believe and do not agree to those those premises for Bible Christians. Catholics, based on their tradition, study the Bible that, that number one, the authority of the apostles and the church preceded the Bible, and the tradition of the church is an equally infallible authority. The Bible is part of the apostolic tradition, which continues today through the popes and the councils. So hear this, the the tradition of the church is of equally infallible authority to the Apostle Paul, to Peter. Um, Number two, the authoritative interpretation of the Bible is the prerogative of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church interprets the Bible. They say what the Bible means. If you disagree with the Catholic Church, you are incorrect. The Bible is not always easy to understand and needs to be understood within its historical and contextual framework and interpreted within the community to which it belongs. Oh, there we go. Thanks. Yeah, didn't miss that one. Okay, that one we're not going to really take issue with. Um, And some of that statement will... Uh, it will be some of what we hit on uh, this, this next session. And lastly, individuals can and should, the read, should read the Bible and interpret it for themselves, but within the framework of the church's authoritative teaching and not based on their own private interpretation. And again, that is where we would disagree, that the Bible must be studied within the framework of the authoritative teaching or interpretation of the church. And this is so significant because... Here's what happens. When you, anytime you have a secondary authority that interprets a primary authority, 
Okay, do you understand, follow what I'm saying so far? A secondary authority that is the interpretive uh, voice on the primary authority. What you do is you exalt the secondary authority. That, this is what happens. Because I am able to say, if I am the authoritative interpreter of the Bibles for you, I'm your pastor, this is, this is what the Bibles say, you disagree with me, tough, you're wrong. You're incorrect because God has given me authority to interpret the Bible. I am then able to wrongly interpret the Bible and that interpretation will be believed as authoritative. And it begins to take precedent over the actual scripture themselves. And this has been done ad nauseum throughout the centuries. This viewpoint that there can be an authoritative interpretation of the scriptures to uh, teach false doctrine and to lead people astray. Um, this is, uh, the Roman Catholics obviously hold that this, that the authoritative teaching sits with the Pope and the councils in the church itself. But for, um, for many kind of aberrant Christian cults, that this is the kind of ideology that you have. Okay, I, I am the authoritative interpreter. And so, yeah, yeah, yes, of course, we believe the Bible is true. But here's what it really means. Here's this secondary authoritative revelation that makes sense of the first. It explains the first. It is necessarily going to take precedent over the first when we have that kind of framework. This is what you've seen in Mormonism. There is a secondary revelation of God given through Joseph Smith, supposedly, and Mormons affirm, they affirm the New Testament. They absolutely affirm, you know, they have their own translation that changes things a little bit here and there uh, in some significant ways, but for the most part, they affirm the New Testament, yet they don't believe fundamental things about the nature of God. They, more a good, faithful Mormon is a polytheist and not a monotheist because they are holding to the secondary interpretation as the lens by which they've got to view the New Testament. And so you can make the New Testament say any number of things when you have an authoritative interpretation. Um, now, I'm certainly not saying that Roman Catholics and Mormons do this in the same way. They do it in very, very different ways. And Mormon theology is much worse, much, much worse. Um, but the very idea that there can be an authoritative interpretation is, um, is one to be very wary of. Um, <clears throat> the last thing I'll say here on sufficiency, and we're, we're uh, just a few minutes away from wrapping up, is there have been concerns, I think, towards uh, maybe, maybe who would be labeled as uh, uh, Bible Christians or, or mainstream evangelicals. There have been concerns uh, brought up by charismatic Christians um, that mainstream evangelicals submit to the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. This is kind of the like jokey uh, way of calling out conservative evangelicals for having a like, wooden view of the Bible. And what I want to mention on that is that, and we'll see this more in a second here, the, the Bible 
the scriptures, the written word of God, it, it is the sword of the Spirit. This is the way primarily that the Holy Spirit communicates to the church and to his people today. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and moves our hearts and our minds through the Bible. And so to elevate the Bible ought to be to elevate the Holy Spirit uh, as his primary means of speaking to the church. Uh, Non-charismatic evangelicals, which we tend to be, must not read the Bible without an expectation that the Spirit of God is going to move and use his inspired word to transform us, to change us, to speak to us. Uh, the Bible is not something merely to understand. We can have an experience with God through his Bible because he is speaking to us through his Bible. And it should impact our minds and our hearts. Charismatics, they, they must not discount or diminish the Bible as God's word in the primary way in which the Holy Spirit speaks today. And that can, that can be a pitfall, I think, for some charismatics. Okay, the very last thing that I'd like to share to, to wrap us up is that the Bible, as the word of God, it is, it is effective. It is effective. It works. It does what it says it will do. Hebrews 4.12. And these are, these are three verses that we, ought to, that we ought to know, get in our hearts, get in our minds, meditate on them. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God will use his word to draw us out, to show us not only what's true and what we need to know about him, about the church, but about our, our own selves, our own hearts. He will use his word to, draw, to lay us bare, to show us what's going on in the depth of our heart. And this, this should be our expectation when we come underneath the Bible, that, he, that God will use it to pierce us, to pierce us uh, in a way that is ultimately healing for the third time, we'll return here to 2 Timothy 3.16. <clears throat> All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has great things, significant things that he wants to do through you. Ephesians 2 tells us that he prepared good works in advance for you to do. He has something, he has a vision for your life that is not arbitrary, it's not random, it matters, it is needed, it is needed. And the scriptures will prepare you for that work. This is the promise that we have received from God. That scripture, it comes from God, it's inspired by God, but it also, also is useful for all these things so that the servant of God may be thoroughly, altogether equipped, readied, able for the good works to which he has called us. And then the last scripture here that we'll end on, <clears throat> Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. This is the, the Torah, the Old Testament, beginning of the Old Testament. Certainly the principle applies to the whole of scriptures. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like 
a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. God's word will bring life and vitality to you. It, it will give you the foundation to endure trials. Like the tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, through his word, God will, will give you the ability to withstand, to keep following him, to hold on to hope and even joy through the most difficult trials of life. Uh, that, has, that has been my experience thus far. Um, and uh, I'll just lastly say here that it's my prayer for myself and for us that we not only love God, but we love, love his word. We love his word. Um, I think God would have it no other way. And as we grow more and more in really loving, meditating on, submitting to the word of God, I think we will experience more and more of the life that God has for us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray here to close this down. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have not left us, Lord, without teaching and instruction. God, you have spoken to us uh, in so many ways, in so many things, God. You've spoken to our minds and you've spoken to our hearts, God. And I, I pray that as a result of spending this time uh, together this morning, Lord, that we, every person here, would have a higher view of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would em empower us to defend that higher view of Scripture, to teach that higher view of Scripture, Lord, um, Lord, to protect it in our own hearts and in our own minds, Lord. Keep, keep us, Lord, from going astray. Lord, and, and from letting the spirit of our age creep in, Lord, so that we would subjectivize your truth and, and ultimately lift ourselves up as authoritative. Lord, we say this morning, we want to submit to you and come underneath you and come underneath your word, Lord, and live by it, meditate on it, and obey it, and love it. And we pray that you would empower us and our church and believers all over the world to do those very things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.